Last two months or so now, we have been going through the book of Colossians. As you know, if you've been here, Colossians is a, a letter, a book in the New Testament, a letter written originally by the Apostle Paul to some Christians in a city that he'd never visited in Colossae and to the churches and Christian communities around Colossae in an area that today is uh, in the boundaries of the country of Turkey. As we have discussed over the last couple of months now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in and around Colossae to encourage them and in some ways to correct some of the errors or point out errors of thought and of practice that had entered into the church there. And so also the people there, their ways of being, understanding, living, practicing, trying to live out their faith. And as can still happen in the church today, uh, the beliefs of other groups of people, the beliefs and the belief systems in our culture uh, infringe upon and push into the ways that uh, we think about and live out our faith. We try to be biblical as a foundation and as a starting point and as a touchstone for our faith, but we are always subtly being... uh, Um, shaped by the world around us, by the views around us, by media. And so Paul, uh, as he would do today, encourages us to be cognizant of these things, of uh, false doctrines, false beliefs. And so Paul, uh, in his antidote to those things, always raises up Jesus as superior in all things and in all ways. We'll see this again this morning. I want to thank those who preached while I was uh, gone on family vacation the last few weeks, Ana Espinoza and John Becker and uh, John Garcia last Sunday. If you missed any of those messages, I encourage you to go back and listen. The things that they said I did, I listened while I was away, and the things that each of them said were rich and had sustenance and uh, things that God can use to nurture us. So I want to thank them and then encourage you to go back, listen online or via podcast, especially to the things that John said and that John Garcia said so well last week as they lead into, as we go through Colossians, as they lead into and really set the stage for what we're talking about this morning. A lot of similarities. Uh, so if you hadn't had a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to do so. We'll see uh, more of that this morning. First, let's pray. God, as we've been attentive to you in prayer, as Jim has led us, and in seeing as Stephen has led us, uh, we ask that you would help us to be attentive now uh, to your word, to your will, to your way, to your spirit. We invite you, uh, as if you need our invitation, but we invite you to fill our space, to fill us. Help us to be attentive. Give us eyes to see and ears that are good to hear your word. Plant within us things that will grow, that will be a blessing to us and the people around us, and that will bring you joy and glory. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. There's much talk in America today about our Constitution's Second Amendment, and I'm not going to get into politics, but it's just worth thinking about those things, where we are as a country and a people. That Second Amendment today reads, as it did 200-plus years ago, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But equally known, and maybe better known, and maybe better appreciated by some, are the words of the First Amendment, which, among other things, grant us, people, American citizens, those who are guests in our country, the right to assemble peacefully, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion, all of which we're grateful for, deeply grateful. 
As we continue in our study this morning of Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul, though, talks not so much about freedom of religion as he does freedom from religion. Beginning at chapter 2, verse 16, listen closely. This is the word of God. Paul writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows and as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration or a sabbath day that's how paul begins this section of colossians his letter to the church in Colossae. and while the honest truth is that even the brightest scholars acknowledge that they don't know exactly what was happening in and around the ancient city of Colossae with regard to these peripheral religions and philosophies and specifically the infiltration of outside beliefs and practices into the church essentially all scholars agree that one of the outside belief systems that was confusing the church was some fairly legalistic iteration or form of Judaism. And that's what Paul's hinting at here. And while there seems to have been multiple different belief systems that were infringing upon the young, still immature, growing, learning church in Colossae, this particular form of Judaism brought with it a number of rules that those who wanted to be truly spiritual or who wanted to experience mystical or divine realities or even just to be seen, and if they were like some of us, many of us, maybe most of us, me, wanting to be seen as spiritually advanced or elite or uh, elite by others required their obedience. Hence his words, do not handle. He's quoting what they heard these outside infiltrators saying, don't handle this, do not taste, do not touch, don't eat these certain foods, don't touch these things that will make you unclean, don't go to certain places, don't come into contact with certain people, don't wear this, don't do that, ever. Do wear this, do do that, always. In a word, rules, and in another word, religion. Our Constitution grants us freedom of religion. The Apostle Paul warns the Christians in Colossae to be free from religion. 
Our Constitution assures that a person may legally and freely believe, embrace, and practice any religion that he or she wants. The Apostle Paul warns the Christians in Colossae that fallen into the trap of practicing the religion, at least of the outsiders and intruders, could have devastating consequences in a person's life, in a person's heart, in a person's spirit. Be careful, Paul warns. But someone might say inquisitively, I thought that Christianity is all about religion. Isn't Christianity itself a religion? And the answer to this question is probably it can seem that way, but really it's not. It's not supposed to be. Christianity may have been or may have become a religion along the way. But such does not seem to have ever been Jesus' intention and following also not Paul's intention. Hopefully you know this, the New Testament is not a book of rules. It would be a lot simpler if it was just a book of rules. But we hear people talk about all religions are the same. They're trying to get people to be good, to follow a set, a collection, a body of rules. But the New Testament is in no way, it can't be understood as a book of rules. Rather, it's a multifaceted narrative about the God-man Jesus and the outpouring, the coming out of him, his spirit through which he draws all people to himself and to his Father who along the way is healing all things that are broken and healing all people who are broken and making all things new, Jesus said in Revelation. He is doing these things. It's not all about a bunch of rules. It's not a bad thing, of course, to engage in spiritual practices. What we talked about is the way of Jesus. Prayer, fasting, giving, generosity, serving, etc. Traditionally religious activities. In fact, many of these things can be really good. They can be beneficial. They can be transformative and even life-giving. They can be eye-opening and world-changing. And they can be God encounters. And yet any of them and all of them can also become problematic when they become too important in a person's life and too important to a person's faith and too important or too central to the practicing or living out of our faith and our following Jesus. Or when certain spiritual or religious practices become ends in itself, you can think about that in your own life or in the lives of Christian communities that you've been a part of, or when they become a source not of communion with God, but instead forms of idolatry. And you can think too about the ways that that has happened in your life, that there's a practice or a habit or a rule or a tradition or a custom of a church or of community or of your life that has become so central and so important that it's become idolatrous for you. Or when a person begins to think or believe that he or she is better or better than others or just better in the eyes of God because she does this or because she does that or because she's earning God's favor through her actions, through her unwavering duty, through her rule-following obedience. There's a little voice in my head, I don't know about in yours, but for sure that if I do these things, even I know better, but the voice behind the voice says, do these things and you'll be good, you'll be better 
You'll please God. You'll earn his favor. And it's hogwash, Paul says. Any spiritual practice or element of the way of Jesus will become problematic when it becomes the central focal point of one's life or one's ego, sometimes leading to the worst of all sins, which C.S. Lewis identified as pride 1,900 years after the Apostle Paul following Jesus identified it as pride. In his own words in verse 18, they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They think they're spiritual, but they're really unspiritual. And it just leads to this wellspring of pride in their lives and hearts. Any spiritual practice or element of the way of Jesus will become problematic when it becomes the central focal point of one's life or one's ego. Boasting, one-upmanship, even if we don't do that outwardly, we may do that inwardly. Has anyone ever done that besides me? Does anyone regularly do that besides me? Never. And Paul insists that this can be a problem. It's clear that some people in the church in Colossae influenced by outside forces and maybe their pre-Christian experiences that they brought into their life of faith with them unknowingly, were elevating themselves above others by implying that their keeping of certain rules that they love, that they attached to, that had been part of their tradition, that they embraced, that they clung to, maybe that were easy for them, made them superior to others in the church. God forgive us as a community, as a body of Christ, as First Presbyterian Church, if we ever do that with other people with whom we sit and worship God an attempt to follow Jesus, if we ever think we're superior because we follow this rule better than others. And so Paul insists it's all a big lie, a scam, it's fake news, it's a hoax. Among other things, the comparison game, Paul says, will kill. Comparison shopping can be really great. Comparison living, not so great. And so Paul writes in verses 16 and 18, do not, he begs the Colossians, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day, all of which were central to the ancient practice of Judaism. And there were elements of that in the church that were just so important in Colossae. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels, another sort of tangent that they got gotten off on, do not let them disqualify you And we'll never know exactly what was happening in the church in Colossae and the surrounding communities among Christians. It was serious enough, though, that Paul writes about it passionately and polemically. The anti-gospel infiltrators in Colossae were not only laying rules on the young and vulnerable Christians in Colossae, but they were also judging them, Paul writes in verse 16, and effectively disqualifying them, Paul writes in verse 18, disqualifying them from the church and from life in Christ and from abundance using their legalistic Jewish beliefs and in some cases their philosophical ideas. They were behaving like umpires and referees, judging and disqualifying in the terms of soccer. They were red carding their brothers and sisters in Christ. In terms of basketball, technical, double technical, you're out. In baseball, the umpire tossing people out of games. That what was, that's what was going on in this atmosphere of legalism and rules that was coming into and affecting the poor young church in Colossae. 
They portrayed themselves as wise, humble, and spiritual, Paul wrote, but their tactics were actually getting them nowhere. Worse than that, their obsession with rules were separating them from Christ and so also abundant life. Verse 19, they had lost their connection with the head. In other words, Jesus, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. They had lost their connection to the head, having named Jesus as the head of the body of the church in chapter one. Paul now declares that these religious people had, in their obsession with certain rules, lost their connection to the head. And what a travesty that was. Imagine if the church is the body of Christ and Christ is its head. Imagine a church walking around with no connection to its head. And what a joke that would be and how sad that would be how lost that would be. All of these headless people walking around trying to figure out life and know God and live abundantly with no connection to the one who is the source from which all vitality comes. And again, maybe uh, all of the Rules and the practices in which they engaged were not bad in themselves and even had some of them spiritual values. Some of them were practiced by Jesus himself. Some of them were encouraged by Jesus himself. But making those practices and those rules their focal points and their central defining characteristics of the way they practiced their faith led to negative outcomes. The religion of rules and laws and practices and traditions and customs that filled the Old Testament in which we, we still see among observant Jews in the New Testament, they did have some value. The practices of circumcision, the, the ceremonies of covenant making, the accoutrements of the tabernacle, and the symbols of the temple, the sacrificial simple symbols and acts and process and rites, the cleanliness laws to which Jews in Jesus' time still observed. And on and on, those things did have value, but Paul declares in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All of these things were pointers and signposts, like a shadow tells you that there's something there, but it's not the real thing. It's on the ground, but tells you that there really is something real and tangible up here. Paul says all of those things, all of that religion, all of those rules had value, but their value was that they were a shadow and they they were pointing to things that were to come. They were pointing to someone who was about to come. A new reality, a new covenant, as Jeremiah said, and that new person is Jesus, was Jesus. And he has arrived, he is Jesus. It is his kingdom in our midst and available to us today. There are some authors who, uh, as I've read over the last year or two, have begun to use this word reality. There's a church, there's a whole collection of churches now in, in California called reality. But they've started to refer to the kingdom of God as the reality of God because kingdom is, it's hard for us to get our hands around that. What does that mean? United kingdom, magic kingdom, kingdom with boundaries, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We have a hard time with that in our minds. And so they've substituted the word, uh, instead of kingdom of God, the reality of God, the presence of God, the realness of God, the tangibleness of God. 
the realm in which what God wills happens and is, the reality of God. Paul says Jesus is the reality of God. Christianity is not about a set of rules. Being in Christ is not about following a set of rules. Salvation is not about following a set of rules. Eternal life is not about following a set of rules. The kingdom of God is not about following a set of rules. Though the kingdom is about following the ruler. It is about a person. It's about a relationship with that person. And Paul so desperately wants the Christians in Colossae to understand this. And to not be led astray into a life of rules and religion. He wants them to understand instead a world of grace. Where we cannot do anything that will cause God to love us more. And we cannot do anything that will cause God to love us less. That is grace. None of this is a license to do whatever we want. To do anything. To live wildly, carelessly, recklessly, thoughtlessly, ungenerously. But Paul is clear that the rules will perish. The relationship will not. The rules will all perish, but the relationship will not. Religion will cease, but Jesus will not. When you die and go to heaven, are you looking forward to practicing religion? If you are, oh, so sad for you. So empty. But... It won't be a religion that reigns, but it will be a king and a ruler and Jesus who reigns supreme. And so that is Paul's point again, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is the way. Rules are a horrible motivator for change. But being in Christ, understanding his grace, being transformed by him, changes a person from the inside out, and then that person does the other things almost spontaneously, willfully, eagerly, joyfully. But rules are a terrible impetus for change and really ineffective. But being in Christ changes a person, has the effect of changing a person from the inside out when we understand his grace, when we live in his grace, when we welcome him. And so Paul says, be careful not to cling to these rules. Cling instead to Christ. Uh, What are the rules that you cling to? What are the traditions and customs that you cling to? You need to identify those. I need to identify those for myself. For some people, and I've experienced it at various times over the course of my life, being Presbyterian is more important than being in Christ. God forgive us, God have mercy. For some, doing church or singing songs in a certain way or a certain liturgy or a certain name or word is more important than being in Christ in actual reality, the way we live out our faith. Lord have mercy. What are the things that you cling to that are more important to you than Christ. Identify those and ask God to free you from religion. Freedom of religion, really great. But more important that we be free from religion that we might be in Christ. Listen again. 
And there's some baptism imagery in here that's so rich and it makes me grieve because Paul's talking about how when we're baptized, when a person is baptized, when we participate in baptism, it's a symbolic, rich, God-infused way in which a person is united in Christ. When the promises of God, the grace of God are declared and sealed. And so often I get approached by people who want baptism but not Christ. They want baptism but not Christ. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is here and is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. They're spinning out of control. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, this is part of the baptism thing of uniting with Christ in his death that we might be raised to new life with him in his resurrection. Since you die with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look really good. They make for shiny religion. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, that asceticism and self-denial. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And what Paul's talking about here is they lack any value in keeping us from idolatry. They lack any value in keeping us from idolatry, and they instead actually promote it. Cling not to the church. Forgive me if as pastor I've ever pushed you, pressured you, intimated to you that anything is more important than Christ. That any practice, that any element or facet of following the way of Jesus, that any religious good thing is more important than being united with Christ and in Christ. Nothing is more important. Call me on it, check me on it. The rules of religion are a distant, distant, distant second, third, fourth to the reality and the availability of Jesus and his kingdom. Let's pray. God, unite us to yourself. Forgive our clinging, our holding on to the things that we can easily control the things that we can do, the things that we highlight if we happen to be able to do them well or appear good in doing them. Forgive us, help us, draw us to yourself, grant to us life and abundance. Reveal your reality in Christ, not dead but alive to us in our hearts and our spirits in our community today. Awaken us, fill us with your spirit. We are vessels for your worship. We belong to you by the cross. We love you, we honor you, and praise you. Amen.